Open up to Romans chapter 2. In the fall, before our Advent series, uh, which took us through the season of Advent and Christmas together, we kicked off a a series. Uh, Well, it's not even a series. We kicked off working through a book of the Bible that will take us some time to get through. And that is by design, that is by intention. So we started into Romans and we made it through Romans chapter 1. And we broke for Advent, but our plan is to actually take Romans together as a church over a long period of time. We're thinking about two to two and a half years is what it will take us. And in between these major section breaks that happen in the letter uh, to Rome, we'll be doing some shorter teaching series to focus on habits and practices. One of the ways we actually want to model a plumb line that runs through the book of Romans of orthodoxy matched with orthopraxy, otherwise known as like right belief, right ethic, actually helping inform and shape actions and how we live. We wanted to sort of do a model is the message kind of thing. Not only talk about that Paul talks about, that what we believe should inform how we live, but actually accomplish that and do that together. So one of the ways we want to model the message of orthodoxy and orthopraxy is to not dive too far into Romans or take too much without an opportunity for our church to actually live something out in practice and in our habits together. And our hope is as we move slowly throughout Romans and partnering it with practice and habits is that as a church, we would live Paul's intent as we encounter his letter together. So if you missed any of our Romans 1 teachings, you can go back, take a listen. They really do set the table for the rest of the letter. So it is helpful foundation work. But today we're going to be in Romans chapter 2 together. And I want to warn you, Alyssa's about to come up. She came up earlier and I shut her down. But she's about to come up. She's going to be reading a lot of scripture. Uh, That's not an accident. It wasn't an error in our teaching calendar. Every once in a while, here's how it's going to go with Romans. Sometimes we'll be taking like dozens of verses at a time, and sometimes we're going to camp out in one or two. And the reason we would take a large chunk of scripture at the same time is because often what Paul does is he tries to make one point in several different ways, and that often happens in paragraphs, not just sentences. And so we're taking a huge swath today because Paul is trying to communicate really one idea. And I'm going to give you that one idea before even Alyssa reads. So you know to look out for it in his three or four different ways he's going to map this idea out. The ultimate objection, uh, uh, objective of this section, which is all of Romans 2 and then a little bit of Romans 3, is to look at sin and the need for the gospel. And how sin and the need for the gospel has affected every person on the face of the planet and more specifically religious people. So in Romans chapter 1, we dove into all of those people out there who do all of those crazy things and how much they need the gospel. And what Romans 2 and a little bit of 3 is all about is how much, or you could even say how much more religious people or people who think they are in desperately need the gospel. So one of the things that is helpful to note here as we read through what Paul has to say is he's essentially writing this section to himself, all right? So he's turning the spotlight in on himself, and he, in his life before Jesus, is the person that this section is being written to. He has the personal experience of every emotion, every hypocrisy, every motive that we'll find here in the text together. So that is what Paul is getting at. In a number of different ways, he is exposing 
sinfulness in humanity and the need for the gospel, and more specifically, how religious people need the gospel. Okay, so I set the table for Alyssa. She's going to come on up. She's going to read this section for us. You are going to stand along with her as she reads the word of the Lord. It'll be behind us on the screens, but don't read out loud with her. That would be a mess. That'd be chaos. But she's going to read our section starting in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, going all the way to Romans chapter 3, verse 10. I hope you knew that before you signed up for this. I mean, yes. I hope I can do it justice. (laughs) Thankfully, there's not any like hard names or places to say. All right. Please read with me. Romans 2, 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. In passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice each practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, you who sorry, this is Bible. Pretty close one and I keep messing up. All right, I'm gonna start from two. I'm sorry. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance but because of your hard and impotent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed he will render to each one according to his works to those who By patience in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immorality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for every one who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. God's judgment and the law. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? 
You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true through everyone were let God be true through everyone were a liar as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lies God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that God may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, not no one. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and have a seat. Doesn't it always seem that we want justice for them and mercy for us? Think of the last time someone cut you off on the highway. What do you immediately want to happen? Where's that CHP? Why is there never a cop here when I want one? But think about the last person you cut off, because you've all done it. How much did you hope there wasn't a CHP sitting on that shoulder? The famous British preacher, John Stott, said this, quote, We work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people, while the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it is ours rather than theirs. I think we can see this most potently uh, with the recent news of the day and uh, the swearing-in of the latest uh, congressmen and congresswomen. And we've seen that all the attacks that one side had on the other are now just being flipped back and forth. The same thing that one side got accused of doing, the other side is now doing as well. And in those moments, we always want leniency for us and harshness for them. Let me tell you a temptation as a parent. If you are a parent, you know what I'm talking about here. Uh, The temptation is judging other parents. 
right? Judging other parents, looking at how other people are parenting their kids and going like, I think we've got this figured out a little bit more than they do. Just the other day, we were at our kid's absolute favorite restaurant, uh, Lazy Dog, uh, and we were eyeing this family that was across at a different booth. They were like in a corner booth, and their kids were like climbing all over the booth and being loud and crazy. And we had this moment where we're like, whew. First of all, thankful that is not our kiddos right now. You guys were awesome. But also that little chip of like, ooh, I think we have this figured out. At least our kids are not like their kids. At least we parent better than they parent. And of course, inevitably, like the next day, you know, we have challenges with our kids that like immediately put us in place. And I'm sure our kids have done the same thing in restaurants. But how often do we go to, I think I have this a little bit figured out more than they do. I've got this a little bit more dialed in than they do. This propensity to move to comparison, judgment, and pride is exactly what Paul is getting at here. He opens the letter trying to convince all of us of our deep need for the gospel. And let me tell you, Paul is kind of a bad news first sort of guy. The first few chapters of Romans are a lot about sin, about unrighteousness, about how none of us are worthy. No one is righteous. No, not one, Alyssa just read for us. And he starts by making the case of all this ungodliness that's happening around. And we can all say, oof, yes and amen, this world is broken. But then in chapter 2, Paul moves the spotlight to those inside the community. Those who should know better. Those who have the oracles of God, he says. Those who have kept the law. Those who are in, if you will. And he says, you guys are just as messed up as those guys. Now, we can easily lose the thread here in Romans. That was a lot of text that Alyssa was reading for us. And particularly the beginning chapters, we can easily lose what Paul is trying to do. And at the heart is a gospel that has a person, a savior, Jesus. And the reality is that if you do not believe you need a savior, then the gospel is not good news at all. And what Paul is trying to do at the beginning is convince us that we desperately need this savior that this gospel promises because we do not have it all figured out. In Romans 1, Paul's firmly established right at the beginning that people who have lived godless, unrighteous, wicked lives are in desperate need for a savior. And there's another category of people Paul wants to go at even harder. And Romans 2 opens what what one, uh, one theologian called a bucket of cold water on those who are part of the church. By those who think they're exempt from that same kind of sinfulness and ungodliness. And I immediately was thinking of a very famous parable or story that Jesus told. And it's in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost son. And Romans 1 and 2 is a bit of an older brother, younger brother kind of comparison happening here. And as you read through Luke chapter 15 and you're thinking about Jesus' story, how, you know, the father had two sons. One goes out and parties hard and squanders his inheritance. And one is a good old boy who stays on the farm and is working hard. But both are in the wrong. And the one who actually finds redemption at the end is the younger son who repents and comes back to his father. And the one we have some mystery about what happens is actually the older son, who by all accounts is doing everything he should have done and somehow missed the grace of the father. 
And if Romans 1 was a bit of a younger brother type sinfulness where Paul's exposing the ungodliness and the wrath and the sinfulness of the pagans out there, those who have rejected God, then Romans 2 is a bit of older brother type of sinfulness, kind of a self-assurance or self-righteousness or pride. Both are bad, right? But one is more susceptible to self-deception than the other. No one's confused about the wrongness of the people. Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 2, but so often we do not think we are the same kind of sinners. And especially as we look at Romans chapter 2, Paul wants us to remind, he wants to remind us of our capacity for self-deception when it comes to our own sinfulness. And I said earlier that Paul was using a bunch of different ways to communicate the same idea. And this idea that condemning others while excusing yourself is what allows us to hang on to both our self-righteousness and our sin all at the same time. We can feel good about ourselves while indulging in what makes us feel good. All the while, Paul says, you're actually condemning yourself. What Paul is saying here, if you want a one-liner for this whole section that we just read, is religious people need the gospel. And Paul begins to talk about the sinfulness of people like himself who had this sense of moral superiority that came with this special position as a Jewish person, God's chosen people, and the keeping of the law and the practice of circumcision, which was this outward marking demonstrating who God's people were. And as Paul unpacks this idea, we could just as easily swap out for every time we read Jew, Christian. For every time we read keeping the law, we could say obeying the Bible. For every time that Paul is calling out a Jewish person for thinking they have it all figured out because they have some special sort of access, we could just swap in those who have been brought into the family of God. Our capacity for self-deception around our own sinfulness is astounding and Paul will not let us off the hook. Paul cracks open this jarring idea that religious people need the gospel just as much, if not more than unreligious people, in verse 1 of chapter 2, which is a bit of a summary for everything that comes after. Therefore, you have no excuse. You're not like the people who have rejected God. You're not like the people who know. You actually know who God is and what he's done. Therefore, you have no excuse. Oh man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So particularly if you've grown up in the church, if you're anything like me, in Christian culture, uh, earlier James and Luke and I were joking about some of the oddities around like Christian culture in the 90s and and 2000s. It's such a weird insider baseball thing. But if you like grown up in the church and you, when I say Christian culture, you go like, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. If I say left behind, or if I'm talking about Stephen Curtis Chapman, you're the crew Paul's getting at right here. With Christian music, Christian TV shows, parents that are Christian, never not been a part of a church. Now, listen up. Paul's not saying that's all bad. He's not saying throw out the law. 
I'm not saying throw out Christian culture. That's not what he's getting at. But what he is saying is in, in, enmeshed with all of that is the capacity to think we're totally fine based on our proximity to Christianity, not actually an inward transformation by the Holy Spirit. The reality is religious people run from the gospel just as much as unreligious people. Verse 3 and 4, he says this, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Don't mistake God's patience for his affirmation. The heart of the gospel is that God's righteousness has been revealed. So it can be received. That's Romans 1, 16 and 17. And one pastor and theologian, Tim Keller, says this, quote, When we rely on anything or anyone but Jesus to give us righteousness, you can read in circumcision, the law. You can read in Christian culture, showing up at church, reading your Bible, whatever. We are refusing to accept the gospel. Relying on God's rules is as much self-reliance and God-rejection as ignoring God's rules. Which begs the question, how do we know? Because it can get messy, it can get gray. What are the indicators of whether or not our heart is right with God? We don't have to look farther than verses 7 and 8. We're right away at the very top. We're barely cracking in to Paul's critique of religious people, their sinfulness, and how much they need the gospel. When he, in astounding clarity, offers the problem and a little bit of a litmus test to see where you're at. So verses 7 and 8 reveals a little bit of self-analysis here. In verse 7, we get a bit of the positive. To those who practice in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So kind of two things we can parse out here, which in my translation says patience and well-doing. Other translations, if you have the NIV, it might say persistence in doing good. But it's doing good. It's living in a godly way that has a persistent life pattern to it. It doesn't come and go with your emotions or spiritual highs, but it is persistent when you feel God is close and when you feel God is far, you persist in living a godly lifestyle, habits, practices, and the like. And the second thing we can parse out of verse seven here is to seek glory, honor, and immortality, qualities that come from life with God and are found in life with God. In Romans Chapter 2, verse 8, we get the flip side, the negative side here. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So the two we can parse out here is self-seeking. As opposed to persistent doing good is self-seeking. It means to have the spirit of a self-will or self-glorification or seeking to be our own Lord and our own Savior. Seeking to be the king of our own life. This is something that can be pursued either through being irreligious and licentious or through being moral and religious and upright. It doesn't matter. You can be self-seeking either way. And the second negative in verse 8 is rejecting the truth and following evil. That there's an unwillingness to be instructed and learn from God's truth. Maybe thinking, I have this figured out. Maybe this is antiquated. It doesn't apply. It's irrelevant. I know a different or better way. To the religious and unreligious, all the same, and Romans 2.11, 
Paul says, God shows no partiality. Everyone has sinned. Everyone needs a savior. Everyone needs this gospel. And everyone needs to live with a humility and awareness that you do not have it figured out all on your own. And Paul says that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So these hard words are building somewhere. Though we all deserve God's righteous judgment, we have the power of God unto salvation held out for us. It is not a foregone conclusion that you will be separated, that you will be just sort of stuck in your religious morality. For both the religious and irreligious, forgiveness and salvation is available in Jesus. Now, starting in verse 12, we move to a really tough section because we can get lost in the weeds and intricacies of Jewish law and a lot of circumcision talk and how the Jewish people have the law and it really didn't produce in them what it was supposed to. The law was a gift to teach humanity about the heart of God, but it was then as it is now that it was never designed to be a set of behaviors, but always designed to call hearts to praise the living God. So Paul starts his next angle of the same idea in verse 12, saying, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And then we get a whole lot of law talk that comes after that all the way to the end of chapter 2. And the question of sinfulness is not whether you have the law or not, Jew or Gentile, but did your possession of the law lead you to God? Did your Christian proximity lead you to a greater awareness of and allegiance to Jesus? Or did it just lead you into more Christian culture? Paul wants to clarify for all involved that the nation of Israel, its reception of the law, the gift of circumcision, these were all things that God gave to Israel to draw them into God's story and to be a light or priests to all other nations and peoples. But as we know from the story of God, that did not happen. It did not happen in the way God intended it to happen. And even still, the Jewish people thought they were all good with God because they had the law. So they could rest on that and say, well, at least we're not like them because God has chosen us. And in verse 17, Paul throws some fighting words here in. If you're not already offended as a religious person, you might have been offended by verse 17. If you call yourself a Jew, and Paul also might say, but if you call yourself a Christian, and the natural response is, of course, I'm a Jew. Of course, I'm a Christian. How can you possibly say that, Paul? I'm sitting in church on a Sunday morning. Of course, I'm a Christian. The word if in verse 17 is incendiary because Paul wants to shake us up. And remember that every time we read the word Jew here in Romans 2, we could just as easily swap in Christian. But if you call yourself a Christian and rely on obeying the Bible and boast in God, it's offensive on purpose. The rest of chapter 2, Paul's describing the person he's speaking to as morally decent, they take the law seriously, and religiously active. These were the two factors that the Jews relied on. Some people are religious, but not fastidiously moral. Some people are scrupulously moral, but not religiously active. The Jews were both. And neither made them righteous. Let us, for a moment, imagine what Paul might write to a modern Christian audience. We feel the force of what Paul is getting at here if we just insert Christian in place of Jew. Paul turning to church members, writing to churches, professing Christians, and says, don't 
just assume you're fine. If you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a born-again Christian and you're sure that you are right with God because you signed some commitment card or walked down an aisle or prayed a prayer and you really cried that one time, you remember that you had strong feelings for God, strong emotions, so you've been converted that one time. And hey, since you have memorized dozens of scripture verses at Awana and you know the right answer to a large array of theological questions and you've led other people to make that same commitment in Christ in that Bible study that you lead and you want to get deeper into the Bible, we could go on and on. Just because, just because, just because all these external things do not equate to an internal status. It's not that any of that stuff is bad. It's not that keeping the law as a Jew was bad or being circumcised as a Jew was bad. It's not that all of these things, being a part of a church, daily commitment to reading scripture and praying and engaging with spiritual, these are all good things, but proximity Christianity does not count in the eyes of Paul. Just being around religious stuff is not enough. It's totally insufficient. These external signs that you belong to God are not the things that matter. Oswald Chambers, in one of his famous daily devotions, said this, quote, The measure of the worth of our public activity for God is the private, profound communion we have with him. There's an internal devotion that then manifests in outward action. The order matters. The priority matters. Again, Keller, quote, if the works of our hands are not being changed and informed by the faith we profess to have, it is right to ask whether our faith is heartfelt and real, end quote. This dips into our orthodoxy, orthopraxy theme that Paul is weaving here, that what we believe should fundamentally change how we live. And one more quote for you, the great 20th century British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones shows how this applies to us as professing Christians. Quote, As you read your Bible day by day, do you apply the truth to yourself? What is your motive when you read the Bible? Is it just to have knowledge of it so you can show others how much you know and argue with them? Or are you applying the truth to yourselves? As you read, say to yourself, this is me. What is it saying about me? Allow the scriptures to search you. Otherwise, it can be very dangerous. There's a sense in which the more you know of the Bible, the more dangerous it is to you if you do not apply it to yourself. Proximity Christianity does not count in the same way that rule-keeping Judaism did not count. This shouldn't lead us to paranoia or like a grinding work-at-all-cost ethic, but just a simple humility that we, no matter how much we do, are not sufficient to save ourselves. There's a bit of a consciousness of goodness in our culture today that everyone fundamentally believes that they aren't as bad as they really are and that the stuff they do is not as bad, especially as other people. And there's a humility that comes from seeing Jesus rightly and letting him shape and reshape everything about us. It's important to note that Paul here His goal is not to bash on his Jewish brothers and sisters or to bash on you and me reading thousands of years later. He's actually writing his own autobiography prior to the gospel. He's exposing a bit of himself. This was Paul. This is and was Paul. 
other letters that Paul has written to churches says he was the, the ultimate Jew. Like he was the Pharisee of all Pharisees. He kept the law. He was moral. He obeyed all the rules. He had it all figured out. However good you think you are, Paul was better. And says that wasn't enough. It's not the thing that actually saves. It's actually a thing that could deceive us into thinking we're fine without submitting our lives to Jesus. Once Paul met the risen Christ, he was able to see the condition of his heart in a completely different way. But what Paul is continuing to drive at here in these opening chapters of Romans is we cannot appreciate who Christ is unless we first acknowledge who we are. The good news is not good until we understand there is bad news to grapple with. Paul's prime concern here is to show that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Gentile, Jew, irreligious, religious, rule-keeping, and rule-breaking, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. All face judgment, all deserve wrath, and it's only from this ground that we're able to look at the cross and see it clearly. Which brings us to the final movement in chapter 3 of what Paul is getting at here. After he unpacks in the first 11 verses his diagnosis of the problem, that religious people are quite self-deceiving about their own sinfulness. And then he gets into some of the finer points of the law and how even good rule-keeping, law-keeping, and morality does not do it. He ends here with the same refrain that religious people need the gospel too. In Romans 3, verse 1, he asks this rhetorical question. After probing and pointing and poking at all the law and morality stuff, he says, then what's the, what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Because maybe the temptation to get through all this is like, what's the point of rule keeping? What's the point of morality? What's the point of reading my Bible? What's the point of praying? What's the point of being a good person, being generous, being hospitable? What's the point of all of that if none of that stuff counts? Meaning if all this rule keeping, all this law abiding, this morality, all this proximity to religious culture doesn't get you in, is it even worth following or doing any of that stuff? Why bother? Why not just live the way I want to live? And he says, of course, there's advantage here. You can't just, you can't rely on those things to do what Christ in you is supposed to do. I think this is my last Keller quote, I promise. But he says this, when we rely on anything or anyone, I said it earlier, Jesus, but Jesus to give us righteousness, we are refusing to accept the gospel. As a Christian, if you are relying on your Bible reading, your morality, your ethic to do what Jesus in you is supposed to do, you are refusing to accept the gospel. As Paul ends this movement, he's exploring the philosophical questions of why. Is there any advantage? Is there any purpose, any point to this morality, this ethic? And what is God's role in all this? What is God as righteous judge supposed to do about all of this? Should God punish us at all since our own sinfulness makes his righteousness that much more clear? It's a weird question, but it's one he echoes in Romans chapter 6. And he says, what should we say then? Are we going to continue to sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul's covering every possible angle to see if there's any way other than through Jesus Christ that a person might find their way back to God. He says, no, there's no way. Not through your sinfulness, not through your religiousness. 
Not through your rule breaking, not through your rule keeping. His answer is simply no, not at all. There is one entry point into life with God, and that is Jesus Christ. Both Jews and Greeks, religious, irreligious, are under sin. Thus, thus, there is something that is needed here. And in Romans 3, 9 through 10, Paul summarizes where we've been. Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. Are religious, religiously fastidious Christians better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. It is written, none is righteous, no, not one. For Paul, in the book of Romans, this is the beginning of the gospel. No one is righteous, not one. I don't know how this hits you today. If this is like, good, because all this rule keeping is really hard. And if all this stuff relies on me obeying all the right commands, I'm not going to do this on my own. Maybe it is actually like a little revealing to all the areas where you actually try to earn some of God's approval or pleasure by doing certain things. I don't know how this hits you. I feel like I went through a range of emotions as I was studying this passage. I think initially I went, yeah, I like, I like poking at people a little bit. So initially I went like, yeah, religious people need the gospel. And I remembered what I do for a living. I was like, oh, shoot, it's me too. Okay, all my scripture reading, all my post-grad work in seminary, all of my daily Bible reading, all of my sermon preparation, that's not the stuff that matters. It is an outward expression. I hope in all humility is an outward expression of what the Spirit is doing in my inner life, but it is not the thing. I am more prone to self-righteousness than anyone here in this room. One of the reasons is because I'm the one holding a microphone right now. So it can sound like I have it all together. I have it all figured out. This text hits hard with me. If you can make it past through the weird circumcision talk and the Jewish law keeping and all of that stuff, what you see at the end of the day, Paul says, is those who think you have it all figured out, you might not have it all figured out. And that is good news because the story does not end here. And while our passage ends here for today, this is just the beginning of Paul's gospel in the book of Romans. As you think of your own religious rule-keeping and self-righteousness, as you think of your friend, your family, your coworker, your neighbor, who is far from God and is living accordingly, this is a humbling text to say the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And the gospel is the power of God at work. Paul says in Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, religious and unreligious, all the same, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We can with full confidence say that without the gospel, we deserve whatever wrath God has for us. We can with full confidence say that without the gospel, those people out there deserve whatever wrath God has for them. We can also with full confidence say, thank God, this is not the end of the book of Romans. There's more to come. Humanity has brought nothing to the table, yet God in his great mercy has blessed us with a path to true life through Jesus Christ. Anyone can walk it. And if they do, it is the power of God 
for salvation to all who believe. To the Jew first and the Gentile, God shows no partiality. He will save anyone and everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. And as we encounter a text like this, I think there's like a number of different emotions. There's a number of different potential calls to action or responses that are live in us. And I don't know what it is for you today. It could be a variety of things. Um, first and foremost, if you have yet to put your faith in Jesus in a meaningful way, the invitation is open for you to walk that narrow path of life with Jesus. If you have said yes to this offer of salvation, this fresh visit into your origin story and mine should spark a bit of gratitude for you. That in humility, there was nothing you brought to the table. And yet, Jesus still saved you. It should spark in you gratitude, humility, should spark in you mission and ambition for the gospel to be made known in this world and to the people in your life. That no matter how good or how much bad you've done, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And Jesus says, come all who would follow me. I don't know how this text hits you today, and I never quite know how to open a new year teaching-wise. Do we kind of continue in a series we're in? Do we do something fresh? Do we do a one-off? Do we do something new? How do we memorialize, if you will, our first gathering of the year together? Because it tends to set the tone for what comes later. And I think it is no accident that this is where our teaching calendar has fallen. That I think the Lord and his sovereignty brought us to this strange and long and weird and wonderful humiliating in the best possible way text in Romans to say for those of us in the room who follow Jesus do not rest on your self-righteousness do not rest on your morality or your ethic whether you believe or it actually is superior to those around you or not that is not what is going to save you and it is not going to be a compelling vision to the world around us for this Jesus who has so saved us and so as we consider how we worship today, there might be a few things that are running in our mind. One is, I think, simply to thank God for saving us. I think as we respond in a few minutes and worship in a number of different ways, we can start with a place of gratitude. Thank God that you've saved me. Thank you that I did not have to bring anything to the table. Thank you that you did everything necessary to bring me into your family. As we prepare to worship, I think one of the ways we can worship is in simple, deep gratitude for our salvation. But more than just worship, how are we formed by this text? And I think one of the ways we are formed by this text is to become the kind of people that are self-aware of our own sinfulness, marvels at the grace and mercy of Jesus, and invites others to do the same. And as we're thinking of worship and formation, and a call to action. What do we do? How, what do we do in light of this text? I think it is to respond in faith, freshly, daily, to the invitation of the gospel and invite others to do the same. Paul has eliminated all potential roads that would lead to life with God apart from the work and power of Jesus Christ. 
that is good news for you and me, that is also good news for those out there, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers. It is good news that they do not have to do anything to find life with Christ other than put their faith and their life in the hands of Jesus. So I want to worship with you today. And I want to walk through a few different ways we can respond in worship to the word of God. One is, of course, by singing. James will lead us in a few songs of worship. And while we are singing, I want your minds to continually be brought to the gratitude that we have because of the work and person of Jesus. But also there's a few other different ways that we can respond as a community. And I want to prepare you now that there will be movement. And movement is a good thing as we're responding in worship. One is that we can pray with and for each other. And so I would say, I would encourage you, if you are in need of prayer or would like prayer. And by the way, who doesn't want prayer? Can we just be real? Uh, If you want or need prayer, you can tap the person next to you. You can find uh, someone on the leadership team. We'd love to pray for you and bless you in that way. Uh, But also as we respond in worship to my right and your left is a table where we have the communion elements out. Uh, And that is also one of the ways we respond in worship. In a sense, communion is the climax to any gathering of Christians together, remembering and celebrating the work of Christ. And no better they than today to remember and celebrate the work of Christ. Christ. And so my encouragement as we receive communion is to just don't go alone. Um, So grab someone next to you, take your family, take your kids, your spouse, whatever, go grab the elements and pause for a moment of thankfulness to thank Jesus for who he is and what he has done and joyfully and gladly receive the communion elements, the bread and the wine, the body and the blood. So if you would please stand with me and we're going to respond together. I want to pray a blessing over you. Jesus, we respond in simple, humble gratitude. I really don't know how a text like this hits different people in the room. I don't know if by default it makes us joyful, if it makes us confused, if it makes us burdened or weary, if it lifts our spirit, if it encourages or consoles or builds up. But spirit, we trust you to do that which what, you, what is what you do when we gather here together, sit under the text together to convict us, to conform us to Jesus, to encourage us to bring life. And as we respond in gratitude to Jesus and Jesus, what you have done and who you are, we are thankful. We're thankful that we do not have to stand on our morality, our religiosity, or our self-righteousness but we can stand firmly on you and what you have done. You have brought us in and you have done everything that was necessary to bring us in. That is good news for us who have nothing to bring to the table. It is good news for those in our lives who have nothing to bring to the table. So would you help us become the kind of people who can live humbly and gratefully, enjoying Jesus, your grace and your mercy, and inviting others in our life to do the same. As we respond in singing and in prayer and in communion, Jesus, we respond to the work that you have initiated in us. Help us enjoy you today. Help us be grateful for you. Help us to encounter you today.
the living God who's reached into history and humanity to save us and bringing us into your family.